The majority of people, they want to just know that their vote counts. And when they hear, and they're bombarded with hearing all these things about voter fraud and hackable machines and this and that and the other, having these audit results on our website to demonstrate your vote did count. The election was sound. It wasn't perfect. There, I'm sure there will be mistakes this month, June and November, but the election went smoothly the way it was supposed to. So the audit functions that we have serve two roles. Number one, to actually audit and ensure the votes were counted the way they're supposed to be. But it's also perception. Perception can be everything in an election, and this is to help boost that perception that our elections are sound. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Our guest today is Howard Dapp. Welcome to the voting booth, Howard. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Howard Dapp is the South Carolina Executive Director. He was appointed in January of 2022 and confirmed by the South Carolina Senate in March of 2023. He is the chief election official of the state of South Carolina. He runs the South Carolina Board of Elections and supervises the county boards of voter registration and elections and serves as an agency liaison with the South Carolina General Assembly. Prior to taking on those duties, he was the director of voter services and served various roles within the board of elections. He serves on the EAC Standards Board. So he is connecting institutions together in South Carolina to make sure elections in that state take place in a free and fair manner. So we're here with Howard today to talk about the South Carolina primary. The Palmetto State is the first major presidential primary in the South and has been influential with both the Democratic and Republican presidential primaries in the past. It's often referred to as the first in the South primary and this year, one of the candidates on the Republican side is Nikki Haley, who's former governor of South Carolina. John, with that background, I'm going to hand the keys over to you to ask some questions. Sure. And, and this comes as a part of a series we've been doing on the early contests and actually how we vote, how we voted in Iowa and in New Hampshire. Now, South Carolina has typically been in recent years, third or fourth, high up in the calendar. But you also this year have a Democratic primary, which is a lot earlier, the beginning of February, and the Republican primary, which we'll probably focus more on, because it's a more, more of a contest, at the end of February. Uh, can you say a little bit about the different dates, some of which I think is caused, of course, by national Democrats wanting to put South Carolina first in their calendar, but the different dates that we're having for the two primaries? Sure, yeah, and that's a, a very popular question every four years. You know, how were the dates picked and who picked them? So it's important to realize that both parties structure their leadership differently and different levels of their leadership have different autonomy over just various decisions they get to make on their own. And that includes the dates. So for the, the Democrats, it's my understanding that the Democratic National Committee actually chose South Carolina to be the first in the nation state for their primary process. That was a political decision. You know, I think the fact that the president's President Biden won South Carolina, and that really took off his campaign four years ago. I'm probably out of hand in that. I would also say that, you know, the Democratic National Committee has a bigger role to play in their process versus the Republican Party. So the South Carolina Republican Party 
they seem, at least to me, to have a lot more autonomy to pick when. And it, of course, is a much bigger discussion with the RNC, but the the South Carolina Republican Party seems to have a lot more autonomy in terms of when. But you're right, South Carolina is historically the third or fourth state, regardless. And we, we tend to punch above our weight when it comes to politics, both the Democrats and the Republicans, with, with the exception of Newt Gingrich, uh, we pick presidents in South Carolina. So, you know, it's, it's always great to have that attention. In terms of the dates, why don't we share a date? My guidance or my, my, my question to both parties last year, like almost a year ago when we were planning for this, was either <laughs> please have it on the same date or two diametrically opposing dates. Because we have early voting now in South Carolina and an election more or less lasts two weeks. And we did not want to confuse voters. So I, you know, I asked the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, however you negotiate this at the national level of your party, please just keep in mind, I would really, really appreciate it from an election administration standpoint to have two very separate dates. And they did that. I pitched the idea of voter confusion. Um, there's already going to be voter confusion because there will be people that show up and want to vote in both, not realizing you can only vote in one. So that helps with voter education and voter engagement. And so it just worked out really well this year. And it actually is not the first time you've had separate dates. I know some states actually are, are insisting that both parties go on the same day. And sometimes that causes some friction. I know in 2016, I believe the, the dates were a week apart. And that maybe is what you were referring to about the voter confusion, that, that there's some overlap between the early voting periods of both primaries. So other than the fact that you might have to run, you are going to run two primaries and it's more work for you and your office, what are some of the other challenges of running these two things? And then what about voters being able to, to choose which primary they're in? What is the process for a Democratic voter, Republican voter, independent voter, which ones they can run in and what, what limits them by, by choosing which ballot? Sure. So you may or may not know, South Carolina is, we do not have registration by party here. So... There's no Democrat list, Republican list. We have open primaries here. Anybody can vote in any primary. That being said, you can only vote in one. You know, in, in terms of the challenges, you know, I look at the challenges as opportunities. We have, on those two dates, we're the only primary in the nation on either day. And the eyes of the world are going to be on South Carolina both days. The first ballot cast for president in this country was in, I believe, Allendale County, South Carolina, in the Democratic primary during our early voting period. We know the world is looking at us. I think it's something to be said that we are, it's no secret, we are a very red state. But the Democratic Party recognizes that we conduct elections very, very well in South Carolina. And regardless of the fact that they aren't having the best of luck electing their candidates at the statewide level, they know our elections are accurate, they're secure, and they're reliable. So the Democrat National Committee also took that in consideration when they picked South Carolina. We do elections really well here, so that helps. But the, the challenges being all the attentions on us, <laughs> for better or worse, I, I look at it as a way for us to showcase how good we can be. There is no such thing as a perfect election, and we, we all know that in election administration. But, you know, some other challenges we have faced is recruiting poll workers. We call them poll managers are the people who work, the, the workers, and then poll clerks are the, the actual managers. It's weird, but they're all poll workers, and it, it's, it's gotten more difficult to find poll workers since, I'd say, 2021. 
the average age of a poll worker is older, like everywhere else in the country, and they're aging out. Younger generations are less inclined to see that sense of civic duty to volunteer. They do get paid, it's, but we still call them volunteers. They work very long hours for very little pay. And finding new poll workers, you know, willing to do the job, willing to do the training, willing to commit themselves to 12 plus hours on a day, that's, that's difficult. It's difficult. And on top of all those three things, the fourth factor being the harassment that poll workers have seen in the last two years, two or three years, is just astounding. I think the worst it ever got here in South Carolina was during the gubernatorial primary in 2022. We had some candidates who were running against incumbents on every statewide office, Secretary of State, Attorney General, Comptroller General, Governor, that were at the right side of the Republican Party. And although they all got soundly defeated against the more establishment Republicans, their followers, their supporters were very, very passionate. I guess I'll, I'll use that term, very passionate. And some intimidated poll workers. Some of them pushed and shoved poll workers. Some of them just harassed, screamed at poll workers. Think about a gate agent at an airline gate and the, the flight's been canceled after being delayed four times. And that's kind of how, you know, that, that paints a picture of how some of these people have been treated. That has, that has gone away a little bit in recent elections that we've seen since June 2022. But that is certainly an ongoing challenge. And I know it's not just a challenge here. It's a challenge everywhere. But finding willing and qualified poll workers is always a challenge. Just a little bit of follow-up. So, of course, there's no party registration, but you can take one ballot or the other. You can't take both. So if you're going to vote, the Democratic primary is early this year. So if you choose to vote in that primary, you're not allowed to vote in the Republican primary three weeks later. But what about people who request a, a mail ballot and you change your mind? Like, at what point at what point have you declared yourself to say, I'm going to vote in that Democratic primary, I'm going to vote in the Republican primary? Really, um, the, the dead end of that is when you cast your ballot. We, we do have a few people who they request an absentee ballot and they think that they, they asked for Republican, but they actually asked for Democrat or whatever the case may be. Um, they can go to an early voting center and spoil their ballot, say, I don't want this, I want to vote in this primary. And when that ballot is cast, basically at any point up until their ballot is cast or up until they mail off their absentee ballot, short of those two time periods, you can change your mind. And then when the June primaries come up, of course, that is one single primary day. And at that point, you have to choose right then and there, Republican ballot or Democrat ballot. So Howard, just following up on your comments about poll workers, you know, we did see a drop off, particularly during the pandemic. And, you know, you're going to have some retirees, particularly when they're an elderly population is primarily your, you know, you're sort of the backbone of your poll worker force. Do you think we have a systemic problem now with this? And is, you know, we have like National Poll Worker Recruitment Day and states and localities do a lot to sort of recruit new poll workers. Um, is this a systemic problem that we need to start thinking, you know, bigger on strategies to face? The truthful answer is I don't know. I don't know. Politics drives so much of this. And what I'm trying to get um, at least college students, uh, upper high school students to realize through voter education is, look, the sexy ballot is president. That's what everyone talks about. That's where all the money is. But city council, county council, that is what impacts your daily life. 
And quite frankly, we get the government we deserve. If people don't show up to vote, those who do set the tone. Those who show up to vote get to decide for all of us what the future is. And so when you put it in terms like that for them, I think it kind of resonates like you do have a vote. You look at the House of Representatives, the Senate, they're casting votes. This is you casting your vote, just like they do on their on the floor of their bodies. This is you casting your vote for your future. We've seen an increase in recent years of younger people turning out more. They tend to vote earlier absentee more than on Election Day. But is this a long-term problem? I really don't know. This is a new phenomenon. And, you know, when I speak across our state about this issue, it's funny because everybody, man, woman, Democrat, Republican, agrees with me when I say it's just a simple lack of civility. If we just brought civility back into this, and by civility, sometimes being civil means just not talking, not screaming, not acting like a a toddler when your guy loses, your gal loses, just acting like mature adults, which is something, you know, I understand people are passionate. I understand people feel very, very strongly about the future of our country and their, in our communities, but I hope this is not <laughs> the new normal, as we said during COVID. I hope that in the future, this phenomenon of harassment and the Jerry Springer show at the polling place is not the new normal. And quite frankly, a lot of it's illegal. And, and police have been known to show up and calm things down. But the visualization of having armed police at polling places is never something we want either. So I, my answer to your question is I hope not. That's the short answer. <laughs> Can I ask one one more question yeah. about the primary process? Because I, I think I know Don is going to want to ask several more questions about that mm-hmm. voting in general. But the last step in the primary process of, is, of course, and let's let's just focus on the Republican side. These votes that people cast are going to turn into delegates at the Republican convention. And if I'm not mistaken, the the process on the Republican side again in in, in South Carolina, you have 50 delegates awarded. 29 of them are at large win the state. You get all 29 of them. And then all of the congressional districts have three. And again, it's sort of winner take all within that congressional district. Uh, one, is it, you know, is that right? But two, talk a little bit about the interaction between your role running the election at the state level and the party process that actually figures out how many delegates and then who those delegates are that go to the, the national convention. Sure. So you, you have it. That your understanding is the same as mine. So the, 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 the primary votes... I believe the way we split our delegates or the Republican Party splits our delegates here is by congressional district. And so that's why we report totals in both PPPs by congressional district. So the party knows these delegates are bound to these candidates that won in their districts. It's going to be interesting to see with uh, the, the two candidates that will be, I should say, this is another kind of phenomenon. No candidate in the Republican Party is actually officially withdrawn in South Carolina. So our ballot's going to have everybody that paid their, their, their money a couple of months ago, they're still on the ballot, and nobody has actually officially withdrawn here. But the actual two live candidates, I should say, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the different congressional districts split um, between them. But we, we just report those totals to on our website, scvotes.gov, and the party takes those totals and assigns their delegates to the, you know, that's who their delegates have to vote for at the convention. So, Howie, just wrapping up on sort of what the voter can expect, um, mm-hmm. how long has early voting or in-person absentee, how, how long has that been in place? 
And what will that period be for the voter who wants to vote in this primary? Sure. Um, so Act 150 of 2022 established early voting in South Carolina. I believe we were the 45th state in the country to establish early voting. Early voting typically in other states has taken about a year to implement, six to nine months to implement, but we had 10 days to implement it before our primaries in 2022. And we did it. I don't know how the hell we did it, but we did it <laughs> and very little sleep. Um, but we have a, basically a two-week early voting period. It's about 11 days, give or take, depending on the type of election. But we have basically a two-week early voting period before every statewide election. In South Carolina, it's, uh, it doesn't really make it complicated because of the decisions of the parties, but our state law allows the parties to choose the time and manner of voting. So they could have chosen not to have any early voting. They could have chosen to have a month of early voting if they wanted. But... Thank God, both parties stuck to relatively the same two-week window. The Republicans gave election workers President's Day and the day before the primary off. The Democrat National Committee, as I was told, set the time, period. Um, the, the state party didn't have a say, but both parties picked two weeks. And that's that's really how it is. It'll be in June. It's how it'll be in November. Um, so it's a two-week early voting period and then the election day. And then related to that in terms of voting by mail, Who's eligible to vote by mail? What are the kind of restraints, deadlines on the voting by mail? We have absentee. So we used to have absentee by mail and absentee in person. Absentee in person went away with early voting. So now we just have absentee, which is by mail. And so any qualified voter can vote absentee before Election Day. They can request their ballot up to 11 days before we used to have, I think, about 14, it's hard to remember at this point, 14 or 18 reasons to vote absentee, either in person or by mail. But now they, with the early voting law, and it's no excuse early voting, they did away with about half of those excuses for absentee by mail. Age, employment, all the typical things are still there. But any, the answer is any qualified voter can vote absentee now and have their, have their ballot delivered to them. In South Carolina, it's... Um, more of a process than other states. You have to call the office or go to the election office, request an application to vote absentee. You fill out your application, you return that application, and then you get your ballot. So we don't just we don't just send a ballot to whoever. You can't request online. You have to actually get an application and go through that process. And what uh, I know you've only had early voting for a few election cycles, never a presidential one before. But what percentage of people do you expect are going to be casting their ballots by mail, in person early, and, and then on election day? So removing COVID in 2020 from the equation to skew the numbers, voting absentee in person, absentee by mail, not early voting, has progressively be become a much bigger portion of all votes cast in every statewide election for over a decade. More people are voting before election day than ever before. Now, 2020... 57, 58% of all votes cast in that election were absentee. They were, because we didn't have early voting, it was absentee by mail or, or absentee in person. And that's because COVID. The people want, and a lot of those absentee were by mail because people did not want to go to the polling place during a pandemic. But the sentiment is 
people like the convenience. And I think that's really what it comes down to. They, they, as my wife said to me last year, you know, with all due respect, Howie, um, no one thinks of elections until election day. <laughs> and I said, that was fair. That's a fair thing to say. Uh, I have to think about it because we have 300 elections a year in South Carolina, but you know, that all being said, I think absentee and early voting are going to nab a bigger portion of the ballot of all votes cast than, you know, as we go forward, than going down. I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to stop. I think it's going to get more personally based on the data. How would, do you think that's because of the convenience? Absolutely. Especially early, no excuse early voting. You go into the early voting center and vote exactly like you would on election day. So just get your voter ID out, scan it, get your ballot, vote it, and leave. And you should be done in, in less than three minutes, especially in, in, a, in a presidential primary where there's one office and really two or three candidates tops. And the people who vote in those primaries typically go in knowing exactly who they're going to vote for beforehand. So the process is very quick. Um, but convenience is absolutely the reason. Shifting a bit to audits, you know, audits is a growing issue in the election and with voters and with the general public. I visited South Carolina at this point, maybe a year ago. I was very impressed with your audit division. Could you talk to me about that division? It's fairly new. And, you know, what do they do? My understanding is they don't just audit the results, but also compliance with other regulations and laws. So, yeah, in 2022, well, before 2022, I should say, all we were hearing about in elections was audits. And that was... That was the word of the of the year in 2021, 2022. I should probably start this story back in 2015. The capital's home county, Richland County, had a plethora of issues during an election. And it wasn't the first time. So the General Assembly gave this agency, and this is before my tenure with this agency at all, it gave this agency uh, supervisory authority over the counties, which meant that my predecessor had the authority to go into a county, conduct a compliance audit, report those findings, etc. Fast forward to 2021-ish, because our budget cycle starts in the fall of the, of the previous year. So in about October, September of 2021, I really started formulating the idea of a separate audit division. So my background in my career is in law, audit, government finance administration. So I started my career at the South Carolina Legislative Audit Council. This is after law school. And I went from there to our energy regulatory agency, and then from there to the state budget office where I was over the whole K-12 education budget. And prior to here, I was at our Department of Social Services as our budget director. And I say that because that's kind of where my mind was, is on accountability and government administration. And so when we, we kept hearing these cries for audit, audit, audit in 2021, I thought, well, why can't we do this as an agency? So I took advantage of the environment and asked my General Assembly for a, an election audit division, which they were more than happy to find. And I, I did that for a couple of reasons, but it was easy because they were all looking to be able to tell their constituents we're doing something about election audits. We are we're at the forefront and we are. I think we're the first state commission or state elections office in the country to have a separate audit division that does what we do. And so to your, your point, we do two types of audits, post-election audits of election results. So to verify that the votes are what they are. 
And then we do county compliance audits to make sure county offices, and we have 46 of them, comply with federal law, state law, and our statewide policies and procedures that we set. And that's really to make sure voters are treated the same, candidates are treated the same, everyone's treated the same under the law. So that's that's really where that was that was born. It was one of the easiest budget requests I think I've ever seen funded ever. I probably could have asked for a lot more money than I did, but I asked for what I thought I needed and they very, very easily granted it. And then that was the accountability piece. And then this past fiscal year, I asked for the other side of the coin, which is a little more difficult. It was to stand up. It's a statewide training division. So we might get into this later, but we have had, um, and this number has actually gone up in the last couple of weeks, we've had over 72% of our county directors quit since 2021. And that turnover is even higher for county staff. And so it became apparent to me, and we, we have been conducting training for counties forever at this agency, that we needed a robust edu- education training program so that anybody who's sitting in that seat as a county director or county staffer could be trained. We could just train them on how to do the job. And then we can have the people to support them in their office to do that job, no matter what their background is. And, and Don, you know, as well as I do, a lot of people there, nobody has a background in this. Very few people have a background in elections. So I've, I've got former attorneys, former librarians, former fast food chain managers, a whole host of, of county directors. So that, that was the other piece, training these people to make sure that they have the support they need to run elections. So, But audit is... It's still a work in progress, figuring out the, the correct formula to audit, how to pick precincts, how to pick offices, things like that. It is not as easy as it sounds, but we're, we're getting there. And, and those former fast food workers are good helping you with the drive through voting. Well, if they worked at Chick-fil-A, they're excellent. <laughs> but yes, no, that's correct. <laughs> Let me go slightly to the time before Don. Don was talking about uh, your audits and some of them post-election audits but just trying to get a sense of the counting of the vote and, and certification of the vote. So first of all, I know I know it's not a guarantee because we don't know how close it's going to be and how the re- results aren't official, but talk a little bit about the counting of the vote and how quickly we would expect to know the results unofficially that night, election night, uh, and then tell us a little bit more about the official process of counting, recounting if you need to, and, and certification, when we would need to have that election actually certified. So, so and I, I'm kind of laughing because polls close here at 7 p.m. And of course, CNN has the projected winner at seven minutes at seven o'clock and 30 seconds up on the screen. So for statewide elections, it's a process getting all the ballots from all the polling places and all the vote sticks from the ballot scanners back to the central office and having those transmitted from the central county office to our office. It takes hours, and it, it, some counties it's made more cumbersome because they have they're going to islands. Um, we have a out in Beaufort County. There's Defusky Island. It's a very nice, ritzy place, but it's an island. They got to use a sheriff's boat to get all the stuff out there and get it all back, and and that takes time. We've got and then on the other side of South Carolina, we've got the uh, Appalachian Mountains. So we've got that terrain to deal with, but. I'd say in a presidential primary, like we're seeing, the two we're seeing this this month, um, and we take kind of a side bet in the office of when the last county will report the results. 
I would say we should have all counties reported if there's no issues by midnight or 1 a.m. at the latest. Now, that's I'd say that maybe maybe 11 or 12 for the Democrats because the reality is there's going to be less overall turnout for the Democrat because there's the incumbent president than there will be for the Republican. We're going to see significantly higher turnout in the Republican primary again because we're we're an open primary state. So much more people are going to vote in that election. That may be a few hours later. I think the latest I've ever stayed here <laughs> waiting for election results to come in was probably in 2020. I was here until 3.30 or 4 in the morning, and that was extraordinary. What has helped is early voting because those results are already scanned. That's done. So every early voting ballot that's cast during the early voting period is scanned. That vote has been counted, and those, those result sticks are ready to be read into the transmitting laptop to us immediately. So counties don't always do that as they should, as quickly as they should. But I'd say polls close around 7. You'll start to see the map of our state start to fill out around 9 or 10 and should be completed about midnight, give or take an hour. And then the actual certification results, what's the date by which you're going to stay? So we, we certify the fo- for the presidential primaries. We will certify, well, the counties and us will certify the following Thursday. Well, they have to certify by, I think, by 10 or 11 a.m., and we certify at 3. So that's that's where that stands. So, Howard, just uh, following up on that. So the election is over. There is or is not a recount certification. South Carolina is one of the states that does an independent automated audit. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what that, what what do you actually do um, in that audit, and has it worked for you in resolving any discrepancies that you might find in early voting sites or just generally? Sure. Um, and, and just we we did have an earlier episode with Mark Early up from Leon County in Florida where we talked about this, but it would be helpful if you could explain, you know, again to some maybe some listeners who don't know the processes or what exactly that independent audit means and and. and you know, how it works, but but from a simple level, what it really means. Sure. So we have hand count audits. And a really simple way to, to explain this is we break our counties into three tiers, three groups, based on number of registered voters. And the largest county in the state is Greenville. It's, it's big. It's bigger than Charleston. So the, the big counties get five contests that we audit, medium, four, small, three. And then... We take a, the number of contests on each ballot. So if it's a statewide election, there could be, I don't know, 18 contests on the ballot, sometimes more. And we assign a number to each one of those contests. And we assign a number also to every precinct in a county. And there could be dozens or hundreds, depending on how big the county is. So what we do is we take those numbers and we put them into an, a random number generator. And that number generator will tell us, so Greenville County... We are auditing randomly these five offices and these randomly picked five precincts. And we basically hand count all of those offices and all those precincts that were chosen to make sure um, we use ESNS, the electionware software, to make sure the electionware software total matches what we visually verified in the hand count audit. And those are posted on our website for public review as soon as they're done. And I think they since we started doing them in 2022, they should be on our website now. And so, Don, what you were talking about, kind of the independent verification of election results, 
That's what we call it. It's a terrible long name. I don't know. I don't know what else to call it. It's almost basically a digital recount of an election. But before that happens, this is before the election even occurs, we send our election database to our vendor, Clear Ballot. And it doesn't have any vote totals or anything. It just here are all the different ballot styles that are going to be out there on election day. And then on election night, while they're all, they're uploading results to us after that's done, they upload those results, these scanned images of all the ballots, to a secure FTP site that they share with Clear Ballot. Clear Ballot takes those ballot images and basically reruns the entire election, which can take a while depending on how big the election is. And they look for an error rate. And of course, if you've been in an election administration, you know that the errors, if there are any, are on absentee ballots. And what do I mean by errors? It means that how the voter intended to vote was not necessarily how the vote was counted. And you see this with hand-marked paper ballots because people fill out ballots and they're not quite sure how to do it properly or they change their mind after they've filled in the bubble and they scratch it out and fill in something else. And so the ballot scanner counted it one way and clear ballot uses the same scanning technology, but their sensitivity is turned up. So they'll catch it a lot quick, a lot more sensitively than a scanner would, a ballot scanner would. And sometimes those errors are, are thrown out. Like, no, you're, the clear ballot software just erroneously said this was an error. It's not. But sometimes we do see that you intended to vote for this person for the Soil and Water Conservation District. That's not how your vote was counted, and that's, that's how it is. Luckily, we have not seen an error rate anywhere above, I'd say, 0.3% in any statewide election. And that's all to say, and let me say that I don't like any errors, but no error rate has ever been remotely close enough to impact any election for any office in this state. But it's another way for us to show our election system works. And I understand the arguments for hand-marked paper ballots, but this retallying, basically, of our election results has demonstrated every statewide election we've used it, that it's hand-marked paper ballots that are causing the confusion and causing errors. So basically, you have one kind of technology that is going to scan and tabulate the votes. Mm -hmm. You then have some hand counting for an audit from some races to check that. Mm -hmm. But then you have this other separate system of technology that's going to go ahead and count the votes. And then you're able to look and see if there are any discrepancies. So it's a full recount in a way of yeah. all the votes by a different technology, plus the, the hand audits that you're doing on, on selected races. Correct. And then the vendor that we use to do the clear ballot is our vendor. They have no vested interest in any of that process. They are not financially involved with anybody but us and we we pay them to do it but they're not connected to our voting system vendor they're not connected anyway financially to any candidate nothing they they don't care what the results are before we wrap this up how are how, how is the response from the public been to the, those type of audits and, and election officials frankly yeah I, I well so election officials across the country when i speak publicly or just one-on-one -on -one with people they're very, very interested in copying our model here in their state, and I encourage them to do so. You know, for some people, nothing you do or say will ever be good enough. It doesn't matter what you do. And I have found that, you know, I, I have gone to bat to, to put election integrity and audit for, at the forefront of my agency and election administration in this state. 
And for some people out there, it's just not enough. And until we get rid of all voting equipment and just do hand mark paper ballots and hand count every ballot, anything short of that is, is a failure. So excluding that extremity, I think overall, it's been very well received because the majority of people, they want to just know that their vote counts. And when they hear, they're bombarded with hearing all these things about voter fraud and hackable machines and this and that and the other, having these election, having these audit results on our website to demonstrate your vote did count. The election was sound. It wasn't perfect. There, I'm sure there will be mistakes this month, June and November, but the election went smoothly the way it was supposed to. So the audit functions that we have serve two roles. Number one, to actually audit and ensure the votes were counted the way they're supposed to be. But it's also perception. It's Perception can be everything in elections, and this is to help boost that perception that our, our elections are sound. So we are coming to the end of our time. Actually, there's a lot more to talk about, but maybe we'll have to have you back. But we always ask our guests two questions at the end. So I'll, I'll start with the first one, and then I'll let, let Don finish us out. First one is, how did, you talked a little bit about this, but how did you get into elections? And then also, now that you know what you know, what would you tell your former self who, who you know, came in, maybe didn't know a lot about elections, and you've learned a lot, what would you tell your former self? So I came into elections, like I said, I was the former budget director of our social services department here. But before that, I was at the state budget office. And while I was over the K-12 budget, one of my agencies I was responsible for was the State Election Commission. And we, this was a much, much smaller agency back then. And I just happened to know Marcy, my predecessor, and um, some of her management staff. And when the former director of voter services retired, I was kind of tired of working in government finance and being the director of a massive agency or the, the budget director of a massive agency was a lot. It just wasn't something I was getting burned out pretty quickly, which is funny to say now. So I asked Marcy, you know, what do you think about me coming over to work for you? And I interviewed and took the job here. And, you know, I started in, in October of 2019. And I think the water was calm for about three or four months because then COVID hit. <laughs> and it was just, man, it was a different animal. But, what you know, I haven't regretted it. It's just been, a you know, while Marcy was here, it's like every couple of months you'd say, you know, it's going to get better. It's going to go back to normal. <laughs> and up until the, t the day she, she resigned, she kept saying that. I think she still says that to me to this day. What would, I tell my, what would I tell myself? I can tell you my wife would say, she'd scream, don't do it. <laughs> I would tell myself, and I have to remind myself of this every, every day almost, there's so much about this job you can't control. And it's important to remember what those things are, and you can only control how you react to things and how you behave. Being at the center of politics, which elections are, and having to stay political and, and, and you know when when you're the chief election official of a state like i am it doesn't matter what the issue is you are the face of elections it doesn't matter if you know what happened you know who it happened to or why it happened you are the person people look to and just keeping that you know reminding myself you can only control yourself i would tell myself that you're you're going into something that is very it can be very difficult and you need to, you need to keep that in mind so how we, um, the, you know, this is a very serious business. It can be frustrating at times. We talked a little bit about that today, but what's a funny or unusual story that you've experienced since you decided to get into the election administration field? 
Well, this isn't. It wasn't funny back then, but it's kind of funny now. So three days after the 2020 election, I I was under a, a tremendous amount of stress, and I I was the director of voter services, so I was over all the election equipment, cybersecurity, all of it, and my appendix decided to burst, and I didn't know it, and I was dying and didn't know it, and I kept telling my wife, you know, no, this is just a stomach bug, it's gonna go away, it really hurts, whatever, and she finally got me to go see a doctor and. I laugh today because it's like this job has almost killed me a few times, actually. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 you're right. This can be a very serious job and it comes with its hazards, but it, you know, it, it's always, it's the, what makes it worth it is the people. It's the people that I work with. I, I'm the last of my agency management team from when I started, I'm, I'm the last person standing. So I've been able to hire my own Asian management team and, and working with them every day is, is what, just the things that we go through, the conferences we get to go to and just, you know, enjoy those things together is what makes the job worth it. That's the most morbid, funny story we've heard. I know it's, it's, <laughs> I can laugh now, but man, yeah. When I, and I tell Marcy that all the time, you know, this job almost killed me. And <laughs> so anyway. Howard Knapp, Director of Elections of South Carolina, thank you for joining us in the voting booth. Thank you for having me. Hi, my name is Michaela Fario. I'm a senior at Cornell University, and I had the privilege of being a part of the AEI Summer Honors Program this last summer. The AEI Summer Honors Program is a one-week seminar hosted by AEI in Washington, D.C., and I was a part of David French's course, American Unity and the Promise of Pluralism. By far, my favorite part of this experience was just all of the wonderful people that I had the opportunity to meet. AI does a great job of intentionally bringing together students from all across the ideological spectrum with diverse backgrounds. Everyone at AI, all the staff and students, intentionally seek to foster and cultivate freedom of expression and diversity of thought, both within and outside of the classroom. As I returned to my university campus, I found that this has just sparked in me this desire to collaborate with people with whom I disagree and to seek commonality in spaces where we often sort of lose sight of all that we share as people. If you're thinking about applying to some honors program, I would just encourage you to go for it. This has been just a life-changing experience and has shaped my own sort of academic journey in an incredibly meaningful way. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hung Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.